The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at www.harmonybible.org. So today we will continue our journey through Christ's letters to the seven churches in Revelation as we look at the letter to the church in Sardis. Before we look at our text, though, I want to give a little bit of background information on the city of Sardis. Uh, Sardis was located approximately 30 miles south of Thyatira, the church we looked at last week. And unlike Thyatira, which was built on a plain and hard to defend, Sardis was built some 1,500 feet above the valley below it, the surrounding valley. So Sardis was easy to defend. And Sardis uh, had several attacks against invading armies. Interestingly enough, though, because of its great strength, the people became overconfident and assumed that this city could never be overthrown. And that, however, is exactly what happened in 549 B.C. when armies led by Cyrus of Persia invaded uh, the city of Sardis. Historic, uh, history actually reports that Sardis had not even stationed watchmen along one of its walls because the wall was considered impregnable. There was no way anybody could ever take this city. So they didn't put watchmen on the wall. It was the ancient equivalent of the Titanic, the unsinkable ship not having lifeboats because they didn't need them. And what is even more remarkable is the fact that Sardis apparently did not learn from this event. Because in 195 BC, they, they repeated the same mistake and were conquered again while they were only guarding the major approach to the city. So while Sardis was known for its strength, they had let pride turn their strength into a weakness. By the time this letter was written, though, things had changed. Sardis had experienced many years of peace under the rule of the Roman government. And a city that was once built on a cliff that was perfect for, invading, for uh, preventing invading armies from coming and attacking, that sat 1,500 feet above the valley floor, was no longer perfect for a peaceful time. So the city moved down to the lower parts of the, of the valley. Most of the city did. And the Roman government brought peace, and, and along with it, uh, Sardis became well known for its production of garments, especially dyed wool. And as they were along major trade routes, they became a very prosperous city. Obviously, garments were in high demand, and it was peacetime living, so Sardis became a very wealthy city. And it was in the midst of that culture that God called the people to Himself and established His church. So without further ado, let's look at the letter to the church in Sardis, Revelation 3, verses 1-6. through 6. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Revelation 3, verses 1-6. through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So here we see that Jesus refers back to the description that was given to Him by the Apostle John in chapter 1 of this book. However, as He has done with each of these letters, He refers to specific elements of that description to create a unique description that fits the, this particular church. He focuses on certain characteristics. And here we see that He calls Himself the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The phrase, seven spirits of God, might seem a little unusual. However, it's one that we see repeated oftentimes in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, verses 4-5, through we read this. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. So the seven spirits refers to the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but here we see in this text that He's clearly referring to the Holy Spirit. He says, this letter, this comes from Him who was and is and who was to come, the God the Father, and from the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Son. So we have this picture of the Trinity, and He refers to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits who are before His, the Father's, throne. We also see this phrase, the seven spirits of God, in Revelation 4, 5, where we read this, Out from the, the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. You see, the number seven is used frequently in Scripture, and often re- refers to the totality or completeness of something. And I don't want to get into numerology, which refers to a hidden meaning behind every number that exists in Scripture. That's not what we're trying to do. However, there's significance to this seven that is used frequently in Scripture. And we see it, we see it in Zechariah 4, where the Holy Spirit is likened to a, a menorah, a lampstand with seven branches. Listen to Zechariah 4, verses 1-5. through 5. It says, Then the angel of the Lord, who was speaking with me, returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. And then the angel who was speaking to me, to, with me, I, to the angel who I was speaking with me said, Who are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? So he says, What are these? And he says, You don't know what they are? And I said, No, my Lord, I do not know what these are. And then in verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, these words should be familiar to us as we spend a number of weeks in the book of Haggai. And in this passage, God was telling Zerubbabel that he would not be able to rebuild the temple in his own strength. Not by might, 
Not by power, but by the full and perfect strength of the Spirit of God. And he uses that picture of a lampstand with seven branches to depict that. Others point to the the work of the Holy Spirit and say there are seven aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to get too caught up on this and miss the point of the text. The point that we're trying to drive home is simply that what's being referred to here is the Holy Spirit. The perfect and complete ministry of the Holy Spirit. The point is this, that Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits of God. His ministry was not and is not accomplished by human strength, but by the full and perfect Spirit of God which lives within Him. Jesus then goes on to remind the church in Sardis that He is the one with the seven stars. Remember the seven stars are the seven messengers, the seven leaders of the churches. We know this from Revelation 1, verse 20. Revelation 1.20 says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we see that even in this graphic that, that Tracy created for us, where we see, we see Jesus holding the seven stars in His hand. He's holding them in His hand. Those are the leaders of the churches. And He says, and I walk among the seven lampstands. I walk among the churches holding the leaders of those churches in My hand. See, the work of the ministry will only be accomplished by the work, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at this message to the church. The first point in your sermon outline is the problem. Number one, the problem. Unlike the last few letters we've looked at where we began with their praise, Jesus doesn't begin this letter with a word of praise. He quickly and readily addresses the problem. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come to you. See, Jesus says, I know your reputation for being alive, but that reputation is not an accurate picture of reality. The deeds of this church may have looked good, but they were lacking substance. Jesus says, I have not... I have found your deeds to not be completed in the sight of my God. You know, it's interesting, and I don't believe in accident at all, that the one who presents himself to this church as the one who has the Holy Spirit, the one whose ministry is complete, says to them, their deeds are not complete. The church in Sardis was not relying on God and the power of the Holy Spirit. They lived in a city that throughout history had let them become prideful, and that they, they lived in a city that had become prideful and even to the point where they had experienced downfall because of it. The city had trusted in its strength time and time again only to be conquered. And now the church was doing the same thing. They were trusting in their own strength, their own reputation. They were like a world athlete, a world champion athlete who decides to stop training because they don't need to train. They, feel, they felt like they could not possibly be beat the church had become just like the city in which it lived. So look at what Jesus tells them to do. 
He says, verse 2, he says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, the things which were about to die. The church in Sardis, they needed to wake up. They needed to repent of being like the people in the city's past who had failed to guard its walls with watchmen. They needed to wake up and be watchful. By telling them to strengthen, Jesus is telling them to add strength. Add strength. Not by their might, not their might or strength, but His strength. Add strength to what remains of the church in Sardis, He says. See, He wants them to not just go through the motions of religious activity. He wants them to be diligent in serving the Lord in the strength that He provides. You see, anyone can hang a sign by a road that says church on it and appoint some leadership, maybe even hire a pastor, sing some songs, maybe hymns even, right? And, and preach a message. And all, they can do all that all while being dead. And one doesn't need to look far, especially in New England, to find such a place. And that's what I pray harmony never become. Because some of these churches around us that do that very thing, that we know their reputation, they have a sign that says church, they may even have a cross on their steeple, but they are dead. They didn't start out that way. They didn't start out that way. But generation after generation, it got to a place where that's where they are. And I pray that harmony never becomes that place. So Jesus gives the church in Sardis a threefold plan for not just going through the motions, but instead to be diligent in serving Him and the strength that He provides. He says this, verse 3, number one, He says, so, number one, remember what you have received and heard. In other words, remember the Gospel. Number two, and keep it. Cling to it. Treasure it. Trust it. And number three, repent. Turn away from your pride. And obey the gospel. You see, the, the solution to the problem is the gospel. They need to remember the gospel. They need to remember what they were told. And then they need to hold fast to it. They need to cling to it. They need to trust in the gospel. And then they need to repent and obey. And I'm telling you, this is where I think oftentimes places that are dead, where they fall down, Oh, they can tell you the Gospel. They can tell you what Jesus did, but they're not trusting and they're not clinging to. The Gospel is not central in all they do. And they're not obeying the Gospel. See, the Gospel is more than, and I say this week after week, but the Gospel is more than walking an aisle or saying a prayer. The Gospel is saying, I turn my life over to Christ. Part of the Gospel is obeying the call to serve Christ, to live for Christ in His glory and not your own. And he says, Jesus says, if you do not do this, He says, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come to you. You see, for the believer, the return of Jesus, we should look forward to with glorious anticipation. It's something that we look forward to. We, we say, come Lord Jesus, come. But for the unbeliever, His return brings with it a terrifying expectation of judgment. You see, here in the letter to Sardis, Jesus is warning those who refuse to repent. He's saying, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to judge the nations. And since these people do not know the hour, they should, like good watchmen, be prepared for His arrival. And yet they're not. So having seen the problem, that though they had a reputation of being alive, 
They were actually dead because they were trusting in their own strength and not Jesus and not the gospel. Now let's move on to the second point in our sermon outline, the promise. The second point is the promise. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. Revelation 3, verses 4 through 6. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, once again, he paints this picture that would be easy for the church in Sardis to understand. As I mentioned earlier, Sardis was well known for its garments, for its production of clothing. So Jesus comes to this church and he says, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And I hope you see the richness of the language of each of these letters. There's so many little details like that that I think culturally we miss. But he comes to them and he says, there's some who are in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they would have immediately known what he was talking about. And this picture is one of unstained character. While the entire church had a reputation of having been clothed with Christ's righteousness, most of them were not. Most of them were walking around with soiled garments. They're walking around with this reputation of being clean and they have stains all over their clothes. Not literally, metaphorically. It's an indication that they were still dead in their trespasses and sins. Yet, Jesus gives this word. He says, there are some, there are some there who are not that way. There are some who are seeking to live holy lives. Some who are seeking to honor Christ. Not just in word, but also in deed. There was apparently a faithful remnant in Sardis who were living out Paul's charge in Colossians 3. And just to speak to the idea of a remnant, we should not be surprised that there's a small group of people who are true followers of Jesus Christ in our world today. God has always dealt with a remnant. He's dealing with a remnant now. He was dealing with a remnant then. He says there's a few. There's a few who have not soiled their garments. And these few, they understood Paul's charge in Colossians 3. Look at Colossians 3, verses 1-17 through 17 with me. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians 3, verses 1-17. through 17. It says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. He says, put them off. Be done with them. Take off those things. And he tells them what they are. He says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on, as you would put on a garment, he says you put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. You see, the church in Sardis, they were meeting, they met, and they would teach and they would sing, but it wasn't in their hearts with thankfulness to God. They were not letting the Word of Christ richly dwell in them. They were not putting off the old self and putting on the new self, the new self that was an unstained garment. But there were some in Sardis, praise God, there were some in Sardis who were putting off the old self and who were putting on the new self and were doing so day by day. So Jesus then goes on to give three promises to the one who overcomes. And where do we turn in our Bibles to see the one who overcomes? Look at 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5 with me. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. We've been in this text. I think we've looked at this text every week for the last four or five weeks. Because in every letter, Jesus gives a promise to those who overcome. And 1 John, the Apostle John, tells us who those people are. He says, whoever believes... Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Did you hear that? Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And then he repeats in verse 5, he says, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, the one who overcomes is the one who remembers what they have received and heard. They remember the gospel and they keep it. As Jesus says in Revelation 3, says they keep it. They cling to it. They trust in it. And then he repents and turns away from his old self and obeys it. He continually puts off the old self and puts on the new self because that's what the Gospel calls him to do. And I don't know where all of you are with the Lord. I don't know if you've made that profession of faith. 
As you know, it's not my practice to have you say a prayer, to raise your hand, to walk an aisle, but I'm going to ask you again, if you do not know Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you, where you change your mind, where you turn from your sin, where you remember what you heard, the gospel, that though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that He took on our punishment, that He died on the cross, and that He was raised on the third day, defeating death and suffering, and that He's coming back again. We remember that message, and then we trust in that message. Not just believe it, but trust in it. That if God was to say, why should I let you into my heaven? You have one answer and one answer only, and that's Jesus. Because of His work. That's trusting in the Gospel. Trusting the Gospel, and then turning away from your sin and obeying the Gospel. And we'll never do that perfectly. Every day I'm picking up my old garments and I'm putting them on and then I'm tossing them off and saying, no, I must put on the new clean garments of righteousness. I must walk with Jesus. And when we do that, when we do that, that's evidence that we are indeed saved. So I would encourage you all to do that. If you haven't done that, I'd encourage you to do that today. So let's get back to our text. What are the three promises given to the one who overcomes? What are these three promises that Jesus uh, says He will give to the one who overcomes, the one who has faith? Number one, He says He will be clothed in white garments. Now, notice in verse 4 that Jesus says He will do this because they're worthy. So He says, I will clothe them in white garments because they are worthy. However, he's not saying that they will be clothed in white because of any deeds they have done in the flesh. Do not hear this. That Bill Batty is such a great guy that one day he will be clothed in white because he is such a great guy. He is worthy. I assure you, Bill Batty is not worthy. Right? And if you have any questions about that, ask him or ask his wife, who will probably bear testimony to that fact. Right? It's not the deeds they did in the flesh. It's not as though somehow they earned the right to wear white. We know this because Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see this point made clear in the prophet Isaiah 64.6. Isaiah 64.6 says this. Listen, Listen to these words. He says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our inquiries like the wind, our iniquities like the wind, take us away. Clearly, even if our if our righteous deeds, even our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, then it's not by our own worthiness that we will walk in white. You see, praise God, it's Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us, that is laid on us, that is given to us, that it is credited to our account. It is only by His righteousness that we are considered worthy. And we are considered worthy. Don't hear me say we're not considered worthy. God looks at us and says, yes, Bill Batty is worthy. But it's only because of Jesus. Praise God for that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, in Jesus. So the point is that those who overcome are those who trust in Jesus. They trust in Jesus and His righteousness, not their own righteousness. 
You see, they're, they're not trusting in the fact that they can never be defeated. They're trusting, they know that they've already been defeated in their sin, that they are in their sin themselves, but Jesus defeated all of sin and death and suffering. They're not trusting in their own righteousness, they're trusting in Jesus' righteousness. And that, theologically, is this big term we call justification, right? That they're justified. But we also know that those who overcome are those who will seek to live for Him and not tarnish, not stain their testimony. So they're walking with unstained garments because they say, I don't want to stain the testimony of Jesus. I want to grow. I want to be more like Jesus. And I do not want to stain this garment that has been put on me. And that we call sanctification. It's a growing in holiness. But we also know they're going to be given white garments. White garments representing eternal holiness. And that's the big theological term we call glorification. That one day, their garments will truly be white. That they will be made white. They will be made perfect and holy. Praise God. Praise God for that. So the three promises. Not only will he who overcomes be clothed in white garments, but also, number two, he will not have his name erased from the book of life. He says, the one who overcomes, I'm going to clothe him in white. And number two, I'm not going to erase his name from the book of life. And I've, I've read this week where some commentators say that's a threat. That it's a threat that, that if you don't overcome, you're going to have your name erased. That their name was written in the book of life and it's going to be scratched out. And I assure you, this is not a threat. This is a promise. That if you overcome, you will not have your name erased from the book of life. A promise that, that he who overcomes will continue to overcome. That he will endure. That the gift of God's grace, that salvation has been given as a gift and it cannot be lost because it was never earned. It's a gift given by Christ. It's a promise, not a threat. That His name will not be erased from that book of life. And number three, the third promise, is that Jesus will confess His name, the overcomer's name, before God the Father and His angels. Far better than having a name, a reputation for themselves, or a reputation with the world around them like the, like the church in Sardis had. Christ will confess he who overcomes before God the Father. He says, you won't have a name with the world. You'll have a name with God the Father. Christ is going to confess your name. He will call you by name and say, this one belongs to me. What a promise. I love the way Bible scholar Paige Patterson summarizes these promises. He says, Clothed in the white of holiness, the overcomer walks worthy into the presence of God and the angels, unafraid of having his name removed from the book of life. And he listens as Jesus confesses his name before all the cosmos. He walks in, clothed in white, not afraid that his name has been erased because he knows that his name has not been erased. And he says, this one, he listens and hears his name called out by Jesus, and Jesus said, this one is mine before God and all of the angels. Praise God. That is hope. So how do we, both individually and corporately, 
That's Harmony Bible Church. How do we apply all of this? How do we bring all this down to, okay, now what must we do? How do we live in light of these truths? How do we take what Jesus said to the church of Sardis and apply it to the church gathered called Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston? Number one, we must not become complacent. We must be watchful. See, we must trust not in our own strength, but instead in His strength. We must trust in Jesus. We must live for Jesus and for His glory and not for our own. And as we do that, may we continually point one another to Jesus. It's not about how great Harmony Bible Church is. It's about how great Jesus is and what He has done and is doing for Harmony Bible Church. And we need to continue to point each other in that direction. Number two, our goal must never to be never be to make a name for ourselves or a name for Harmony Bible Church. We must never try to make a name for ourselves or for Harmony. We must always be careful not to stain our reputation. We have to be careful that we're not seeking to stain our reputation or the reputation of the church. Don't hear me say that because the church is His bride and far be it from us to stain the reputation of His bride. We must instead be serious about lifting up the glorious name of Jesus and making Him known to the community and to the nations. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. So let's proclaim His name. And number three, we must be serious about remembering the Gospel. We must cling to the Gospel. We must remember it. We must cling to it. And we must repent of our pride for not obeying the Gospel. For not following Jesus. Not growing in our faith. See, I believe the Gospel has to be at the center of all that we do. And as long as there's breath in my body, I am going to stand up here and I am going to proclaim the Gospel. And I'm going to proclaim the Gospel. And you're going to say, but most of the people that come here, they don't need to hear the Gospel. They're already saved. And I'm going to say, that's who needs to hear the Gospel the most. We need to hold fast to the Gospel. We need to remember it. We need to cling to it. We need to obey it. That's what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. By and large, many of them unbelievers. But even the believers there, He says, you need to remember, you need to cling to, and you need to repent of your sin. You need to obey the Gospel. The same charge is true. For all of us. So the gospel has to be at the center of all that we do. And number four, we must help each other endure to the end. We must help each other endure. Looking forward to the day when we will be clothed in white. The day when we will walk in, we will hear our name called by Jesus. Confess to God the Father by Jesus. And Jesus will say, He is mine. Praise God. And we need to live expectantly. Not looking to what this world has to offer, but instead, pointing each other toward toward endurance to the end. Toward the promises that exist here. Toward Jesus who's going to say, not only am I going to clothe you in white, I'm going to stand before God the Father and say, He belongs to me. Praise God. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Today, thank you for the opportunities we have had to remember your gospel. God, I pray and ask that you would help us to be serious about not only remembering it, but also clinging to it, trusting in it. God, that we would be eager to 
trust fully in the work that Your Son, Jesus Christ, did for us on the cross. And God, that we would obey Your commands. God, we know that Your commands are not burdensome, but instead You have given us grace to live for You, for Your glory. God, I pray that is indeed what we would do. God, give us the strength to live in community with each other, to point each other in this direction. God, help us. Help us to endure to the end. God, help us to live in such a way that we are bringing You glory and honor in all that we say and do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and for more information about Harmony Bible Church, visit www.harmonybible.org. God bless, and to God be the glory.